Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative and FI360 Project. I'm Tara McBride, and I'm here with my colleague, Jennifer Sicozzi. Hello. And for the, this episode of This Month in Women's History, we're going to fangirl over the iconic Rosie the Riveter. I love Rosie the Riveter. Um, I think that I'm not alone in being uh, one of those gals who dressed up like Rosie the Riveter. Uh, it's the easiest costume to do, and you feel so cool, and you're very comfortable all day. And not sexy Rosie the Riveter, because that's just weird. Yeah, you look cool, too, so, I mean... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, pants are fun. <laughs> pants are great. So let's get, let's talk a little bit about Rosie. So Rosie the Riveter isn't an actual person. Now, there are a couple of women who were used as inspiration for Rosie the Riveter. Really? Yeah, but Rosie is actually a cultural icon from World War II, representing the women who worked in factories and shipyards during the war, uh, many of whom produced munitions and war supplies. So it was really kind of a symbol of the transition from uh, women being in the house to women being part of the workforce to support the war. Wow. Yeah. I, I really never knew that. I came into this not knowing really anything about Rosie, so I'm very excited to oh, yeah. really you're, hear about her. You're going to get the breakdown on Rosie. She's she's awesome as an icon, and you know the women who are represented by Rosie the Riveter are just, I think, special. They're, mm -hmm. They... Uh, stepped up during the war. All of the men um, were, we live in a different time. Um, men are not, men and women are not necessarily required to serve. Mm -hmm. um, World War II was different, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the enormity of the war was um, just all encompassing. It was all literally all hands on deck where all of the men were being recruited into the military and that left all of the jobs open, mm -hmm. but things still needed the company. The country still needed to move forward, uh, not just to support the war effort, but to support all industry. Mm -hmm. um, so, with such a huge gap in the number of people who were available for the workforce, it was time for women to step up. So, that meant that over six million women got war jobs, and it was uh, non-denominational, non-non-discriminatory. It was. African-American women, uh, Caucasian women, Asian women, um, Native American women, Hispanic women, all working side by side. So it's simply that if you can work, you're working. Exactly, exactly. In the book, A Mouthful of Rivets, Vi Kirsten Grumman shares about the time when she decided to take action and become a riveter. So she got a job building B-17s on an assembly line, and she shares just how exciting it was by saying, quote, the biggest thrill, I can't tell you, was when the B-17s rolled off the assembly line. You can't believe the feeling we had. We did it, end quote. Once women accepted the challenge of the workforce, they continued to make strong advances toward equal rights. So this whole movement of women entering the workforce was sort of like that first major catalyst for uh, women's rights. I mean, the vote obviously was a big deal, but this was something that was monumental in terms of having equal footing for women and men in the workforce. Yes, this is, I mean, I, I feel like equal pay was probably not, that was happening at the time because the women were probably being paid the same wages that men were at the time. You know, I don't know that. Oh my goodness. That is a really good question. I'm, we're gonna figure that out, stay tuned for that answer. Right. But it makes you think like all of these women that are stepping up taking these men's positions I mean, you said it, they, they were so excited when, when they rolled out and they said, we did it, we did it. That motivation probably just 
launched everything. Yeah. What's really interesting, I think, though, and we'll get into this a little bit more, is that have you ever seen a movie, A League of Their Own? Yes, I did. All right. So you know a little bit of the sense of the feeling that women had when they stepped into these roles mm -hmm. and that not only were they, they had to fight the assumptions of what they were capable of. That's, you know, we need you to do this work and oh, your, your delicate hands, I don't know if they can handle it. So there was all of that that they had to deal with. But then after, when men were returning from war, women were being pushed aside. Like, we don't need you anymore. But it's sort of like you get this taste for something and then it's ripped out of your hands and you can't, you can't deny the fact that you enjoyed that mission, the work that you were doing, and now you're expected to go back, go to go back to life as it was before you were asked to work. And I think for a lot of women, that was a really hard transition to go from, I'm needed, I'm important, this is really good work that I'm doing, to get yourself back in the kitchen and raise those kids. That's what you're really, you're really tasked for. Thank you for your, your service during the war. That's unreal. They mm -hmm. kind of treated them like soldiers in a sense, like, thank you for your service. Time to go back to, to where we came from. Yeah, go pretend back. like this never happened. Go back to life as usual. And I just don't think a lot of women could do that. Something changed for them, right? So mm -hmm. some of these women were already working. Um, so nearly 19 million women held jobs during World War II, and many of them already had been working in lower-paying jobs or were returning to the workforce after being laid off during the Depression. So there was just a whole lot happening at this time. A lot of change. A lot of change. Really, only 3 million new female workers entered the workforce during the time of war. Although most women took on male-dominated trades during World War II, they were still expected to return to their everyday housework once men returned from the war. Government campaigns targeting women were addressed solely at housewives. So this is always really interesting, likely because already employed women would move to the higher paid, quote unquote, essential jobs on their own, or perhaps because it was assumed that most would be housewives. That's ridiculous. I know. I mean, it is a fair assumption, right? A lot of women were housewives at the time. So the campaign to recruit women focused on their primary target audience, me pulling out my little marketing stuff, their primary target audience is going to be women at home. Women in the workforce would already see that there are opportunities just by nature of being in the workforce and hearing about things at work mm -hmm. and opportunities to step up and, and do those uh, more essential duties. So I get where they're coming from, but it just kind of makes you feel like it, it's so cringy. Yeah, well, just because I, like I said, I knew nothing, so I'm, I am the yeah. Like, oh my gosh, really? We did that? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, their target market was housewives. And they actually used advertising to target these women, asking, quote, can you use an electric mixer? If so, you can learn to operate a drill, end quote. Propaganda was also directed at their husbands, many of whom actually were unwilling to support such jobs. Many of the women who took jobs during World War II were mothers. Those women with children at home actually pulled together their efforts to raise their families. And I love this because it just, it speaks to that, you know, it takes a village mentality. Mm -hmm. um, everybody knew that this was essential work, that we had to step up and, and women needed to enter the workforce. But it's not as though their kids went off somewhere. And it, so they had to come together as a community and say, how can we work together to make sure that we do both the work in, in industry and the work that needs to be done at home? So a lot of women would pool daycare responsibilities. They would try to take shifts that were opposite of each other so oh, that wow. they could 
step in and help when, you know, I had to go to work, you would come and take care of my kids and then vice versa. So it was really a total community effort to make this happen. That's really wonderful to hear. I mean, it, it's so hard to get people to do that now sometimes, but it's, it, we should probably take note from the women in our past and the, where we really came from. That's really where it started was the, that community between us. And it sounds like it really began here. Like, yeah. It was super important at this time. And in order to be successful, I think that a lot of people at the time and women specifically felt like this, trying to understand what it was like to have Germany invading all of these different countries. It's really hard to fathom what that feeling would have been like, this spread of Nazi Germany and how terrifying that must have been. And the number of people who were going to war, I mean, every single family was affected in some way, whether it was a father or a brother, somebody was going to war. Um, so everybody knew that they had a role to play in this war for us to successfully defeat the Nazis. Mm -hmm. This was just you know, one piece of that, and it was a huge piece. Because in order for, for the men at the front line to be Successful, successful to, to win the war. They needed munitions. They needed, you know, supplies. And those things only happened when things were operating properly at home. The women were the backup. That's right. That's right. They were taking care of the small stuff so the big picture was able to work. That's right. And it was actually, it, you know, a lot of people struggled with that because taking on a job during World War II, World War II meant that people weren't sure whether they should urge women to stay at home, which was the normal narrative, mm -hmm. or to support their soldiers. So there were people who were really torn about whether or not to go to work or urge their significant other to go to work because it just felt so counter to what they were used to doing. I see that, and I bet men probably felt a little bit intimidated by that as well, because they, I mean, if you have someone in your job, working your job, and doing a good job, even though that the native manager doesn't notice them doing a good job, but still doing that, that sense of, that fear of being replaced, <laughs> it, it'll always exist. So I'm sure a lot of those men felt very scared for their jobs in that time, be, feeling replaced. So I'm sure that added a lot of stress on them, a marriage at that time, feeling like their wife was replacing them and becoming the lead of the household. The amount of conversations I'm sure that had happened in clo behind closed doors, we would never know, but I'm sure it probably affected some things. Yeah, I, I, I have to imagine that uh, everybody was torn. You know, men were torn about whether or not to insist that the, you know, the women in their community support the war effort by working. Um, but then there's this question of, well, what happens with the kids? But, you know, obviously women took care of it, right? That's just what yeah. women do. Um, they take care of it. They make sure that it's, you know, it's covered. Uh, and somehow these women worked full time supporting the war effort and still raised their children. They did it all. And they did it all. And part of that was because they came together. So uh, huge lessons, I think, there. I agree. Uh, so there were two women who are sort of, pegged as the original inspirations for Rosie the Riveter. Mm -hmm. uh, one was Rosalind P. Walter. Uh, she came from old money and worked on the night shift building the F4U Corsair Fighter. Later in life, Walter was a philanthropist, a board member of the WNET public telev television station in New York, and an early and longtime supporter of the Charlie Rose interview show, which I love Charlie Rose, the Charlie Rose interview show. 
Um, so it's no, no surprise that she supported that. A second woman who actually became more closely associated with Rosie the Riveter was Rose Will Monroe, who was born in Pulaski County, Kentucky in 1920 and moved to Michigan during the war. She worked as a riveter at the Willow Run Aircraft Factory in Michigan, building B-24 bombers for the U.S. Army Air Forces. Monroe was asked to star in a promotional film about the war effort at home. So they were like, hey, you, you, you are representing the war effort here at home. What we have to do to make sure that things are successful. You're going to come with us and we're going to put you on film. Come with me, kid. You're going to be on film. Yeah, come on now. Um, (laughs) So the song Rosie the Riveter was popular at the time. And Monroe happened to best fit the description of the worker depicted in the song. So Rosie went on to become perhaps the most widely recognized icon of that era. The films and posters she appeared in were used to encourage women to go to work in support of the war effort. And at age 50, Monroe realized her dream of flying when she obtained a pilot's license. So this chick, I mean, yeah, she stepped up during the war effort. She, she went into the workforce. She, you know, was a riveter building these, these bombers, but she obviously had, bigger ambitions, wanted to, to do more. So bigger it's plans. almost like, yeah, bigger plans. It's almost like they couldn't have chosen a better woman to represent the iconic Rosie the Riveter for, for that time. Yes. And it's cool to see where she, I mean, where she came from. The fact that she wasn't just one person, she was a combination of more than one woman. I think that that's the best representation of Rosie because it was the coming together of all the women of we did it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that really is just perfect to her character and not just a character. No, she's got grit and uh, she lived it her entire life. Um, she actually crashed her small propeller plane in oh. 1978. She survived, okay. um, but she did have, uh, she had engine failure during takeoff and uh, she actually lost a kidney and the sight in her left eye. Whoa. Yeah. A kidney and her eye. <laughs> in the site in her that's an interest that's very interesting yeah interesting turn of events yeah <laughs> but she she lived to the ripe old age of 77 okay. uh, she was alive until 1997 in Clarksville Indiana so she was she was a, a tough gal yeah really <laughs> I so I love Rosie the Riveter I uh, I actually have a book that I read to my daughter called Rosie Revere Engineer and it's this sweet sweet book about uh, this little girl who's an inventor and she invents all of this crazy stuff for her family and for her friends. And, um, her great, great grandma, or is it great, great aunt Rosie? One of the two, um, comes to visit her and Rosie shows her one of her inventions and she just laughs hysterically. And it's sort of like this feeling that Rosie has. It's like, why would you laugh at me? This, this, this hurts my feelings. And, um, her great, great grandmother basically gives her, advice on how to keep charging forward and, and follow your heart and, and do it, uh, do what you know is important and right. And, uh, in the end, Rosie actually builds this flying machine for her great, great aunt who all she ever wanted to do was fly. Like she had worked on these bombers and she shared the story with Rosie about how she had done all of this. And then Rosie builds her this great little flying machine. I don't want to call it a plane because it's definitely not that, but it's just such a great story um, that taps into history that I get to share with my daughter. Um, and then I get to talk to her about who Rosie Rosie the Riveter was and why it was so iconic and important. So I, I just love Rosie the Riveter. I think that she's 
as an iconic figure, one of the one of the greats for women in history. And I think it's great that you're teaching your daughter that, and the, the book is perfect. I mean, I wasn't, my mom didn't sit and teach me about Rosie the Riveter, so you know what, it is the job of, of mothers to, to teach their kids this, and you know what, thank you for teaching me about Rosie a little bit more, but you know what, now, we, now I can teach someone about Rosie a little bit more than I knew. So hopefully Stella now is able to teach people about Rosie the Riveter or how she feels about it. I'm sure she probably goes to school the next day saying, I read this awesome book with my mom, and she probably talks about it, so that's pretty cool too. It's a really popular book amongst kids her age, so... Um, yeah, they get they get to talk about really cool women and and do it with empowerment and uh, and complete excitement. So I love that. It's so great. Yeah. So Jennifer, thank you for joining me to talk about Rosie the Riveter. I was so happy to share some information with you, and I'm glad that you have something to take away from it. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. So thank you all for spending some time with us. Again, this is a little louder now by the Bridge Initiative. Stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services talking about a variety of topics. If you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can also support our podcast without spending a dime. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.